Welcome back to The Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And this is a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite lack of experience, money, or connections. You would think that uh, this intro, we use the same recording over and over again every time because it's the same every time. But no, we bring it to you unique uh, with whatever tinge or vocal uh, anomalies that are happening that week. So hopefully this week you like our voices. And today you'll be hearing part two of our conversation with Kevin Yu. If you haven't heard part one, you can actually just listen to this part, but part one where Kevin Yu, an industrial designer who ended up starting a brand uh, that is developing a haptic wearable technology first for blind people, but then for all of us. Uh, he's developed this company and he talked about in part one about how he went from a designer to an entrepreneur and actually developed that skill set, the entrepreneurial skill set. And in today's part, he's going to talk about how he launched the company, how he ended up raising money for WearWorks, how he went through different iteration to actually bring this hardware product to life, something that's really difficult to do with such an expensive product. And he talks about how he became passionate about the problem of solving uh, the difficulties that blind people have, the visually impaired people have in navigating day-to-day life. And then also how that ended up stumbling him into this massive opportunity of wearable technology and technology that leverages haptic feedback and how they're paving the way for that too, because he'll talk about the patents that they're getting and the like. And by the way, Kevin, sweetheart, he paid us an awesome compliment, the best compliment that you can pay to a couple of podcasters like ourselves. When he was leaving uh, the studio, he said, I felt really comfortable with you guys. And I don't know if it was the voices. Probably it was. You guys sound great. And we thought, wow. You already won me over in spite of me. And don't be a separate. All right. So (laughs) without further ado, here's our conversation with Kevin Yu of WearWorks. And check him out and the product at where.works. That's where.works. And if you want to hear more about their Kickstarter, go to where.works forward slash Kickstarter. It sounds to me like you choose what you do based on what interests you or what pull you feel for a problem, right? But talk about now, I think this is a good transition to start talking about WearWorks. You're working on this furniture stuff. You met this guy, Mark. Talk about how you make the transition from thinking about this as an interesting problem to solve to then saying, I'm going to start a business around this and I'm, I might spend the next 10, 15 years of my life doing it. You even said, I want to spend the rest of my life solving this problem. That's some that's a commitment to one problem that most people would hesitate to make. How did that happen? Um, I think it really just all happened because he, he spoke about it. I invited him to Pratt to talk and... That was the first initi- like initiation, not getting some random person, you know, who is a designer guy who just kind of made it a little bit, uh, but somebody who is actually going through something and could require help in the sense of making something innovative, right? Like, I think a really good way to say this is I was really into automobile design as well, and I was really into prosthetics design in, in the midst of all this stuff. And I was doing, I took a prosthetics class and I also was just drawing cars like constantly. And I was like, why do I draw cars? It doesn't make any sense. It was like really just a practice for me just to keep it up. And then for the prosthetics, I was like, wow, this, this product sucks. Like at this moment, somebody can pay $10,000, $30,000 for a, a prosthetic arm and it will not be able to hold a pen. 
So I would literally go up to a guy, he, he had a 15,000, 20,000 parasitic hand, uh, arm, and I said, hey, can you hold this pen? And he, and he literally struggled for like 30 minutes trying to like hold his pen. And he's like, hold on, hold on. And I was like, wow, this is so crazy. Why? why? And then, the, so the design that I made was a, a prosthetic hand that could uh, be for architects or drawers or artists who lose their dominant hand. It could, it could hold a pen in a more, more natural uh, way. But anyways, I think like that's how it really divides into in terms of, I guess, if you talk about designers in general, I always love the next beautiful car. But the real thing that like I think motivates me personally is the thing that's going to like change people's lives, literally 180 degrees. And I think my father is a really big influencer on this. When I first started this you know, product, he knew that I was doing it for Marcus, but I kept talking to him about transitioning it into a bigger market strategy. I kept saying, you know, because back then I didn't know the numbers. I didn't know anything. I wasn't a business guy, but I was like, I think, you know, it's going to be too hard to make this for a healthcare product immediately off the bat. It's going to go large and then it's going to be adapted and then it's going to go into the healthcare market and then it's going to be licensed, you know, all this, like, you know, medical approved. And so I kept talking to my dad about wanting a different strategy approach of not doing it for the blind first. And my dad kept looking at me and saying, if you don't do this for the blind and visually impaired, you're going to waste your life. And as this, I keep playing, I keep telling this to my team, I keep telling this to my co-founders, and I keep telling, saying this over and over again, and to our investors as well. I think that's a statement that I say, I, I like to say, because of course, you know, I do respect my dad and stuff, but it's it was true. It really so, purely was true. The way that I converted from furniture making to a wearable device that navigates using vibration for blind people. It's the same thing. Like furniture making is a luxury. Furniture making is like really like, wow, do you not really have furniture that you want to have another piece of table? Like it's it's a luxury item. But moving it over to a technology and an innovation where it could actually change someone's life 180 degrees. And I, I'm the person that invited this guy and to convince myself almost you know, it convinced everybody else, all the other designers, a lot of people from my batch ended up going into doing very positive things for the world, uh, except for one guy who wears a Pepsi. <laughs> but sell it. <laughs> sell it. But anyway, you know, it was it was really. I think that's the that's the thing. Like it hits you. Yeah. So I can totally see the motivation uh, behind it now. It, it it's getting clear to me. Talk about how you went from wanting to solve this problem to then turning it into a business? How did you assemble the team? How did you decide the first thing you're gonna to do to make this a, a self-sustaining venture? This is, I think, the most challenging. Um, I mean, everybody says this, right? Idea is nothing, execution is everything. So when the, the good thing about a designer, I think is, or especially industrial designer, is you, you are taught that process of iteration process to begin it. And you can definitely start it on your own to a very like far extent. But once it includes manufacturing, once it includes um, software development, app creation, and all this stuff, because, you know, where works, we're doing software and hardware. That's so much money. You know, we're making a map app. At, at the same time, we're making a wearable device technology. So it's, it's highly costly. So in the beginning, the app was never even produced. I was just going into making, you know, uh, an illusion of it. So, I, you know, Arduino, right? Just plug it in and just put some vibration motors in and just see you know see some codes outsource it whatever you got to do but in the end i think the the main differentiation was when we first got 
a check from New York's Next Top Makers, but they're now called FutureWorks. But way back when, they were giving $10,000, very tiny checks, but no equity exchange to a very small group of entrepreneurs within New York um, that would, you know, that had interesting ideas, literally concept stage. So I, I'm in a video, uh, before we called it the Wayband, we called it Beyond Sight. But people used to say Beyonce. <laughs> so, yeah, so I changed the name. Can't hurt marketing. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? But it definitely was a mixed message, right? Yeah. But we won this first thing with a group of six companies that are doing fantastic right now. But, you know, we were one of the youngest companies, literally like a couple months, right? I just started the concept. I just started some iterations. I made some bands. I, I taught about like how we would, you know, navigate you, made a, a video about it where I'm just walking around and just talking about it, right? So it doesn't, the, the product doesn't have to fully work and fully flush out. Literally, we were just representing a very good concept and doing a video production. And then we got the first 10,000, invested the whole thing into making our first prototype into a more legitimate thing. Just bought all off-the-shelf things and just made a couple couple of rigs and it worked. Hmm. And I think once that started to work, you know, we were spending just all-nighters just like constantly just developing this thing. Me, Keith, Young, we were just, that was, I think, and that was the purest, purest part about it. You know, I think I talk about this less and less and we've gotten, you know, much more into the depths of sales now and like marketing and all this stuff. But back then when we were truly innovating on this technology and now we have patents on all this, you know, like it's we just talked to the lawyer today. It's, it's officially patented in like a, one, one more one more month. All the paperwork is done. Cool. I'm like, wow, you know, this thing that we did in Jersey back then too, like in Brooklyn, we were just traveling around to each other's apartments, just tinkering it away in this thing with a $10,000 check. And we're like, oh, our runways literally can be forever if we just don't eat anything. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we, we were we were just crunching it. But once after that prototype was ready, we were able to go places. We were able to go to BMW, for example, and get into an accelerator, huh. Urban X in Greenpoint. And once after that happened, that's a bigger check, 100000 uh, but that's also with equity. So min- meanwhile, producing these prototypes, we were establishing a business together. But and, and I think that that's, that's something I think um, I watched a video of Mark Zuckerberg a long time ago uh, about this. But like it never occurred to me until now. He was like when people were like making stuff in the beginning, they really don't think about the business at all. Like when we're making furniture, we don't think about the business. When we t- when we were tinkering around with technology, we don't think about the sales and marketing. We're just like doing it because it's like really innovative and it's like the coolest thing we were doing right now. So once after that was established, once after we had a, a person, Marcus, who literally taught me everything I know about healthcare, about the blind and visually impaired organizations, politics within it, lobbying, everything, the corruption in it, everything. He just talks about it forever. And once I got the, that update, and once I started to get understanding of the technology portion of it, and then now I'm as an industrial designer, as a designer in general, you start kind of swerving around and, you know, making it happen. And I think that's that's when you start creating the team. Like Marcus was my first teammate. And then Yong, my, my best friend from Pratt, he was my teammate. And then Keith, I did a exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum with Keith. He was doing stuff with fashion. I was doing it for 3D printing. He was my team. And so the initial team core was actually quite strong. And I think that was because of our old friendship. But I, I still say don't do startups with your friends because, it, oh man, after four years, you start to regret. <laughs> right, right, right. Sounds like you're making it work. Uh, but so when you guys were working on the prototype, going from Brooklyn to Jersey, whatever it is, being resourceful with that 10 grand, 
were you still uh, a full-time employee or no at this point at that time that was when that was after i quit my job actually got it during the time when i was working as soon as we got that 10k check or even before that actually even before that um about three months four months before that check came uh, i quit my job and i literally just walked out on a monday and i, I just grabbed my stuff and walked out and then I called up Keith and Young, and I said, "Hey guys, let's just do this full time. I think this is, I think this is like really it." So were they both not full time anywhere else at this point? And then also, you know, I'm assuming this is before the BMW accelerator, where you didn't have that 100k. Like, were you guys all just compensating yourselves with equity, and then whatever side projects you had? At that moment, um, we didn't establish the company officially yet. It was still in a concept phase. Before the 10K came in, we were literally just all looking for jobs. Got it. <laughs> but luckily, I was actually living in Manhattan with my you know, ex-girlfriend. So I had to pay the bills. Therefore, I had to get a job. Yong, um, he was also applying to a crap ton of jobs. He eventually got a job at Tiffany's and he was working there for a little bit. Keith was also going to interviews and such and such. So we, we were like doing it multitasking because we, you know, you can't just pour your entire like, you know, you could actually like be homeless. Right. <laughs> so, but you quit your job. I quit my job once after uh, and then I moved out of Manhattan. Yeah. Got it. So, so you quit your job. I'm assuming you had a little bit of money saved up, maybe, yeah, to support just yourself. 10, just 10, yeah. and, and you moved out of Manhattan, which obviously <laughs> saves on costs. It just so happened that Keith and Young were also looking for opportunities, and so they were like, you know what, we'll try it out full-time with you? Yeah, that's exactly right. And then once after that happened, because we were just applying to everything. At that moment, like during that ch- time when I was at the job, and um, you know those two guys were just applying for jobs meanwhile applying for jobs we were applying to other things but still as like a very early stage concept because we were still like not fully established company yet so we were just applying to everything as like you know three dudes just trying to do something cool like here's a video of what we made a little description like we accelerator program exactly yeah we, we had to get into an accelerator and i think that was like our entire motive yeah we didn't get into the urban x the BMW accelerator off the bat in the first one. And that was a like the most crushing moment, I think. We were at South by Southwest. We were actually, um, the 10,000 that was given to us by New York's Next Time Makers, they, they flew us out to uh, South by Southwest to get our first time exposure. And that was really awesome. But that's when we realized that we didn't get the, the Urban X uh, accelerator. And I just, I just went back in the shower and I was like, oh. <laughs> How did you get it the second time? Why do you think you got in? I think... The first time, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of components to it. I think the first time we literally didn't have anything. And the second time around, um, you know, I literally, I was like, we have to get this no matter what. Like, this is our future. So I went there. I, I went back to Connecticut. You know what? To save money, actually, after I came back from Manhattan, I went back home to my parents. And uh, I just, like, locked myself in the house and just, like, worked on this thing for months. I, I, I thought out about many many different concepts of, of products so we went through iterations of different things like a cane for example I, I, I made a fully functioning haptic cane that has ultrasonic sensors on it that detects objects um, and I made another one for the chest strap that also is ultrasonic sensor and a bunch of different iterations of the way bands but it was like uh, one that you could hold one that you could clip on your shirt the one that you could like put as a belt a bunch of different iterations of it because I just had to like work as fast as I could and just get it all out so that we can pick something and just move with it. So during this time when I was living in Connecticut, 
it saved me money and I was just able to create the most, I think, coolest looking thing that I could represent as our company. And I, you know, I ended up making this little nugget. We call it the nugget. And I put my fingerprint on it and it's like, like painted black, perfectly like, you know, well-made design. And then I just put my fingerprint on it and it looks on white uh, fingerprint and it looks really cool, right? And that's all I wanted to do. And then when you hold it to the right direction, it stops vibrating. But when you start to move away and you get offset, it begins to vibrate again and get stronger. And that was it. And it wasn't pointing towards anything. It was just random. <laughs> it would be always random. As soon as you turn it on, it's like a random mode. So it's it just like the experience of it. Like People can really use their imagination. It's just this experience of it. it had to be really refined. So that's what I was doing for a while. And so you used that prototype to, to reapply and show them that you actually had something now? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Just, just refining that prototype, but also kind of like the first type brand image. I think that's something that people don't take so harshly early on. I think entrepreneurs, especially in the tech world, they, they always care about the functionality. And I think that works with software. But as soon as it becomes something that's human facing, something that's like, you know ergonomic oriented, like wearable device, right? It's all about fashion. It's all about ergonomic even. And here's the main thing that I learned. When I went to all the blind organizations and I talked to the individuals, I was like, do you actually care about what color it is? And they're like, we care about what color is more than you care about wow. what the color is because I want to match things and I want to match things so much that I will go out of my way to like, you know, do it huh. because it's it's the connotation. Like for us, you know, we know we, we already judge everything as, as the way it is by seeing things. But a blind person going outside, they really care about the way that they're represented and they want that to be exactly what they what they what they want. So the color like spectrums and you know the the design of it and all this stuff, ergonomic portions were really heavily detailed because they they care a lot. Why do they care it. about how they're visually represented more than you and I? Because we the, the description that an artist Emily she's now an MFA at Yale. She uh, also worked at the Metropolitan Museum and she's the first one that saw like what I was doing at the Met, which is like the 3D printed edible. And she found that interesting because it's, you know, how do you understand art in a different way? So what she taught me was really how blind people portray themselves. And it's, it's quite the opposite of what you would expect. You know, just because you cannot see this thing doesn't mean that you don't care about it. It just means that you care about it more. Because now you need to know where it is. You have to think about it. You have to, you know, you have to be attentive to it. Like this cup of water, right? Like we see it, so we know that it's right here. But as soon as you can't, you're going to be thinking about it constantly. So it's it's a really interesting psychology. the The fact that of the matter that I can't see what I'm wearing makes me care about how I place all my clothes based on color, based on everything. Hmm. So this organizational fashion compares to what I'm wearing to go outside to represent me is a lot more intensified because of the unknown you know because you can't sense the judgment so you you know that's that's the main reason i'm actually curious so at this point because you mentioned that obviously you were motivated to work on this product because you wanted to solve problems for the blind and visually impaired and you were also just inspired by marcus and his story and everything that you learned about the field but obviously as we learned from you in the pre-interview this is actually a much bigger idea. There are many use cases for people that want to navigate 
without looking at something, right, through feel and touch. And so when you got into this accelerator, got the funding, were you guys pitching it as a product that had a bunch of different potential market use cases or was it more niche? And then how did that evolve for you to guys to continue working on the business and get more funding and the like? So the the thing that VCs like are completely different from what entrepreneurs like, completely different from what, you know, uh, exiting investors want, right? But in the end of the day, main thing is it's got to be something very innovative and very cool because everybody can stand behind that. But I've always known the reason why I started this product that led onto a business. But when I talk about it, it definitely hits the mark when we talk about haptic, when we talk about vibration technology, like haptic technology going into the future and creating a language around it. So the core of the company now is a haptic language company. We're developing the new ways to understand information through touch. Hmm. And this is something that's very interesting to all of us. And it's an equal playing field for everybody. We all have cell phones. We all have you know things that vibrate, but it's always been giving you notification feedback for forever. So now how do you now develop that into something more intense, more educational, more informational. Like for example, navigation, it's a good place to start. So as soon as you can give a very intuitive, very simple navigation information through haptic feedback, then that's the beginning. People need it, people get it, and they're now using it as a tool. And for blind people, it's 180 degree, right? It's like, it's, it's an amazing improvement. It's a humongous amount of stress relief. So, because it, there's no way to do it at this moment, right? A lot of people don't want to go to new places because they don't want to close in their audio and to have street names yelled out to them and the, and the feet, but they don't actually know if they're going the right direction or not. They don't know when to actually make the, the turn when it comes. So, this, these are like things that are outdated, you know, in, in our lives. And I think when we talk about haptic design, talk about the future of, you know, vibration technology and how we are going to communicate with our technology without having to constantly look at it or listen to it. That's that's very exciting to people. And that's very exciting to me as well. So as I mentioned, also, um, I worked at a haptic company for two years. And Keith also uh, was very into haptics and he made a, uh, a haptic kung fu suit. So, by, by you know, we, we've done stuff with haptics in the past that was directly from both of our interests and from all of our interests. So growing the business to a larger scale, we talk about our core values, which is making the wayband that's going to navigate and it's going to you know change the way that blind people are going to get around. But they also know that the main beneficial for all of us will be if we create a new type of technology that communicates information through this new way of understanding it. So the vision does sound huge now that you mention it. And, you know, I want to ask, you've raised about half a million dollars to date. You've been working on this for about four years. And you're pre-launch. You're actually about to launch in September, is it, with a Kickstarter campaign? Is there a date set and a funding amount that you're going for? We're saying September 20th, mm-hmm. but um, I'm going to say end of September. Okay, good, <laughs> good call. Good call. How much are you trying to raise? We're trying to raise uh, 200000 Great. Yeah. And by the way, if you're interested, go ahead and go to weir.works, W-O-R-K-S, forward slash Kickstarter, and you can learn more about the Kickstarter. And so as a pre-launch company for the last couple of years, how do you start to not only de-risk for investors that you're going to have an ability to actually get customers, but also for yourself? How do you 
you know, I, I'm convinced that you're a talented designer. You and your team can design stuff. You and your team have learned how to manufacture stuff. You deeply care about the customer and you understand their needs in a way that probably most people don't. How do you de-risk the business side throughout throughout four years before you launch? Such a good question. This is the main thing that we get asked because we're currently fundraising right now. We're about to raise 1.5. And you have to kind of do that before you launch in order to give yourself a cushion for every kind of mistake you're going to make, especially in the hardware side and software side. When people ask me about commercialization strategies, when they ask me about you know how to de-risk, honestly, the only way to do is by going to people directly and getting pre-sales. So we give them the experience because it is hard to talk about haptics, right? We, we've learned this the hard way over the years. Through our website, if you check it out, we, we had to use a, a video production from Discovery Channel because they did an amazing job. Uh, they created a person that's going side to side running. And then as they deviate off what we call the virtual corridor, it, begin, it becomes red, which represents the intensity of the vibration. But see, that's the thing. If you don't feel it, it's really hard to explain what it's doing. It, people just kind of assume that it's a buzz, buzz, buzz thing, right? But it's not. It's it's really an it's it's really an intuitive system we can give to people. We don't even tell them what to do. We just say spin around. That, that's really the one thing that we do. We say spin around in a circle and stop when you feel you're going the right direction, and that's it. Ninety-nine percent of people pretty much get it right off the bat. Blind-sided, child, old people it doesn't matter. And I think that's the kind of simplicity that is going to help us de-risk this product in the market. And I definitely know that part. You know, that's the patent that we have on it, and that's like the thing that we've been really sinking our entire teeth into. So the investors like that. They like the fact that we we protected ourselves, that we have a value establishment and the evaluate you know and our evaluation of our company. Once we have that, all we have to now really officialize is getting our sales mm-hmm. and email list conversion is what we're doing that's what everybody has to do and we have about about you know 500 something email lists without any marketing or advertisement and we're just about to hire a pr firm so i think as soon as we start you know going out there talking about it more like exactly like this we're going to start to increase the numbers up you know the ted talk just got released a couple weeks ago it's got over 1 million views and i think it's been continuously funneling in channels to our website but really the de-risking part and this is what I think about day in, day out now. And great advice for designers. <laughs> Once you design the thing that you're supposed to design, you're just becoming a salesperson. Hmm. You just straight up become a sales and a marketing person that is going to sell the thing that you just made. So the good thing is you can do it with an amazing amount of passion. But if, you know, even if after the years and years, you can you can talk about it more than that person, that person, anybody. It, it really, that, that's the risking. That's the risking it. Having a good salesperson that is really the founders, and a lot of people always say this: like the founders are the best salespeople. You got to go out there, you got to sell this thing, get people to give you down payments, you know, get get your get your email list up. Because mm-hmm. I want to have at least like you know ten thousand people on our email list. I want to have one thousand units already sold before we click on launch. And then once we do that. You know, the first batch of the manufacturing, I'm actually doing this in South Korea through my uncle's manufacturing facility. That's a truly, that that was the luckiest thing that happened throughout the entire thing. And I didn't even know about that until like a few, you know, maybe a year ago. Hmm. So, you know, that's, I think a little bit of luck definitely helps that de-risk everything. And especially in a hardware company, everybody's like, how's your manufacturing? And I'm like, don't even question it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think once you de-risk the manufacturing and de-risk the, um, the pre-sales, you know, the rest is kind of should should work. You already have pre-sales or is that the Kickstarter? 
intent? This is the Kickstarter intent, okay. yeah. Okay. So you spent the last several years essentially building the prototype, refining the product. That's sometimes how long it takes to, to build hardware. And uh, there's actually a lot of cool stories that unfortunately we won't have time to cover, but you were recently on a podcast called Fix That For You where you talked about the story where you essentially partnered with a, a blind marathon runner named Simon Wheatcroft and you yourself became a runner and I guess trained and ran the New York City New York City Marathon, right? Yeah, New York City, yeah. Which is a crazy story. Check out Kevin's appearance on Fix That For You. But you were doing the building for the last few years. Now you're switching your hat, right? And you're becoming a salesperson. Are you okay with that? It was a it was a struggle in the beginning because I'm I'm still thinking about the little minuscule things that needs to be changed at the very last moment to be a good product. And I'm I'm actually very picky about the things I buy. You know, as a, as you can imagine, like I I don't like a lot of things, and I I also really respect and love a lot of things, but especially if it's your own product, like whoa, the judgment gets real and. I'm not 100% happy about the product, but that's okay. And that's the thing that I've, I've, I've learned to adapt to. And that's why I can now finally take off the designer hat and say, all right, this is the extent to where I can potentially push it. Now it's up to the manufacturing. Now it's up to all the people that, you know, now you're going to pay them to do it. You just have to trust them. And I'm going to put on my marketing and, uh, and sales hat and just go out there and talk about this thing with the most passion that you know that I have, and and th- and that part is actually easy, and that's what I've I've actually been doing for so long because you know I I ran the marathon right like I know what it's like to push yourself to the extent of like this is a new technology this thing failed you know this thing succeeded this thing like had troubles this thing had problems and then to go back and assess it and then to still talk about that transparently and then to say hey. You know, I, I, I tested it out in the craziest place before and now we made it better. And now this is the thing that you're going to buy. How exciting is that? Mm-hmm. You know, I think like that's the reason why I don't mind taking off the, the hat and talking about it from a more like, you know, this is ready actually for you. You know, this is this is a time. So do you plan on then focusing on doing the direct to consumer model or are you interested in potentially partnering with other folks that could resell and distribute for you as well? Another great question, something that I've been thinking about also day in, day out, um, both. And this is usually not the right answer, apparently. Uh, VCs and investors don't like when you, when you multitask on your sales strategy. But as I'm heading marketing, I'm thinking about the B2B strategy more as a gift giving. So I want to give uh, five way bands, you know, 10 way bands to the organizations that we've already partnered with and beginning to partner with. By doing so, they can now spread the word and teach their people with it. And today I just sent an amazingly long email to Western University in Michigan, and they have the best mobility training groups for blind and uh, training for blind children and uh, and teaching assessments and, and all this stuff. Like they literally do, and they were telling me they did exactly what I did. They blindfold themselves and they go out there and they learn about what technologies work, what doesn't work, what methods are efficient, and they make it better. And then they teach, uh, you know, kids all the way up to elders on, on, on this method. So I think this is a great partnership. Education is a fantastic partnership. It's a B2B strategy, 
but not necessarily I wanted to use it for sales in the beginning. I'm just like planting planting a bunch of seeds here. Awareness. Awareness, exactly. And and to also I immediately say the B2B strategy is I want to use your your logos. I want to use your logo, have a link to your website onto our website and connect us, create a funnel. And once we do that, it's beneficial to both of us and it also increases trust within our product. And I like the fact that we can, you know, say our waybands are being used and being tested by these organizations uh, within different regions. And I think that's that's a fantastic thing. And that, that leads into B2C. And then lastly, it's clear to me now that there's the sky's the limit for this technology for the haptic feedback space in general. And it's clear that you're leading the way there as well. For people that are interested in the space and specifically for people that might be interested in your product, what are some other use cases then for navigation based on touch? I know you talked about a little bit for bikers and hikers and athletes like that. It might be very useful as well where you don't want to necessarily look at something to know if you're going in the right direction. You can get feedback by touch. But what are some other use cases for people that might be interested in checking out your product? Um, Tourists. I think tourists is a huge one. I think we're all tourists, honestly. It's just kind of you know general living or urban dwellers, right? That's that's also city life and whatever. I think tourists is is so exciting because when you go to another country, you really don't know where you are, and you don't know any of the street names, and you don't know anything really based on the pronunciation and how it spelled and sounds and etc. So. Navigation. I mean, I've been traveling a lot to Europe. I go to Germany, you know, several times a year. I go to you know Korea several times, and um, whenever I go, I immediately look at my phone a lot. I start to to use my phone dramatically, and most of the time, I'm looking at the map. So, it's it, it, people kind of got used to it. Really, I think that that's what it really comes down to. People got really used to it, and in the end of the day, it does its job. However inconvenient it is, you'll get there. Google Maps or Apple Maps or most likely Google Maps will get you there <laughs> and, and you trust it. So I think tourism is a big one. I think uh, people just in general, you know, walking around in the nights and when walking around when like, you know, areas where it's a bit dangerous, you know, whatever. I've been hearing a lot of that feedback, like a lot of females actually want to use this in, the, in, in areas where they don't want to be like distracted by something. Mm. And bikers and of course hikers and stuff like this is, is, is a great market. But mainly, I really want this to become just as used as your map on your phone. Actually, funny, because I was just in Italy uh, traveling there for a wedding, and I was in Florence, and I was basically having lunch in the square near the Duomo, and then I had to make my way to the train station. And of course, I'm using navigation, Google Maps, everywhere I go. And my hack for not having to look at my phone is I would look at my phone, I would memorize like three or four steps ahead and luckily the do almost close to the train station but i literally I'd be like all right you're gonna come to a fork there's three different options you're gonna go to the rightmost one and you're gonna go straight and then you'll see this landmark and you're gonna take a left there and that way i didn't have to look at the phone but obviously if i had some like the wayband uh product for example or something that was telling me okay now go right uh but through feedback i think that would be uh, a lot more useful so that sounds like there's a lot of applications there and it also sounds like because you really care about what you're building kevin that you're going to be happy to see people like you have patents obviously but you're going to be happy to see other companies and businesses and people that can develop other products using your technology and what you're creating to solve similar problems as well which is awesome yeah and to to wrap up this interview 
you know, one recurring theme to me from one of the early things you said in this interview is obsession. You, at one point, you were obsessed about winning a competition. Uh, at another point, you sort of followed your gut and interest and turned your interest in furniture into this obsession that helped you get this initial venture business off the ground. And then you became obsessed about a problem that you really wanted to solve for somebody or for a population, and you spent the last four years doing it. And I think the only reason why you've had the success that you've had, why you've been able to raise funding, uh, get a team around it, um, get press, New York Times, you know, Discovery Channel, all these things that you've been able to do is because of this consistent effort based on this obsession of solving this problem. And I think that's why you're going to continue to be successful with this venture. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show. If you're listening and you're interested in learning more about the Wayband or WearWorks as a brand, go to wear.works. That's W-E-A-R.works. And if you're interested in getting in early on this new product, then go to wear.works forward slash Kickstarter. And of course, we'll provide the link in the show notes in the description as well. Kevin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Very inspiring story for us and obviously our audience as well. Thank you so much. That was a pleasure. 